This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. We're on New Books in Eastern European Studies today, and I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. We're joined today by our guest, Professor Catherine Ciancia, who has published a new book called On Civilization's Edge, A Polish Borderland in the Interwar World, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Thanks, Catherine, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So a little bit about uh, Dr. Ciancia. She is the Assistant Associate Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she has taught since 2013. She holds a BA from Oxford University, an MA from UCL, University College London, and a PhD from Stanford University. This is her first book we'll be talking about today. And I understand that she's now at work on a new book about the role of Poland's global counselor network in policing the boundaries of citizenship between the end of the First World War and the beginning of the Cold War. So let's get right to it. Um, Catherine, I followed your work for many years as a, as a geographer and cartographer, and I want to ask what led you to Volinia and to researching this book? Um, well, thank you. And um, I've been thinking a lot about this question because I know it's one that you ask your guests. And it's also one that is very much of interest to me when I listen to other people talking. So um, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I think there are multiple answers to the question of how I came to this book. Um, one is actually a story that I begin um, when I begin the book in the preface, I talk about this story. Um, and that is a conversation that I had with my grandfather, who was from Poland, who was born in 1913. So actually, just before um, the Polish state um, re-emerged on the map of Europe. And he told me a story when I was younger about growing up on what had been the border between the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He lived there in the 1920s. He was a young boy at this time. And um, he talked about the fact that when his family had to decide where to go when they went to town, he lived in a, this was a rural location in which he lived, um, they always went to what had been the Austro-Hungarian Empire and not to the area that had been part of the Russian Empire. And I didn't know what to make of this at the time, because I really didn't know very much about Polish history at all. I really only knew what my grandfather had told me, and I realized later that wasn't the whole story of Polish history. Um, but it struck me when he talked about this decision that the family made, it was all about where the level of civilization was higher. And I think I remember thinking that the concept of civilization in this context seemed rather strange. I associated civilization with, you know, Greek civilization or Roman civilization. 
Um, but he was talking about a very everyday decision, where to go to buy provisions, um, by thinking about, by invoking this idea of civilization. So that must have stuck with me because this book is basically all about the everyday connotations of ideas of civilization, how it's not civilization with a capital C. Um, it's actually something that really informs the decisions that people make and their sense of the material culture all around them. Um, and then I also have the more, I guess, the more sort of standardized um, answers about the fact that, you know, I traveled to this borderland region before I did the research. Um, I was very interested in the layers of history in a place like Volinia. Um, it's now in um, Western Ukraine. It was in, into war Poland. Uh, but when I went there, it was, it was part of Ukraine. And, you know, I was very interested in, the, you know, going to the cemeteries and looking at the gravestones and thinking about the, the, the various different groups who had lived here historically. Um, and then the other answer to the question really is that this is a space that allows me to ask questions that are very interesting to me. Um, it allows me to think about questions of, you know, borderlands and, you know, how do, how do states function in these places and, and what, you know, who and what is the state in a place like this and how do multi-ethnic states think about diversity. So, there's something very specific about this place that interests me, but it also provides a, a way into a set of questions that are interesting, I hope, to people who never really thought they'd be interested in, in Volinia or even in Polish history. Yeah, and I see this as a as a type of book that asks a lot of really interesting questions, and, and I want to ask some of them if I can of you. Um, I wanted to um, ask you really if you could explain to our listeners a little bit about the region of interwar Volinia. What what is it, and then how do you understand scale as a as a mapper, as a geographer, and someone who's trying in many ways to get the vantage and the views of guard activists and others who who live there. Yeah. So um, so first of all, a little bit about Volinia. Um, I recognize it's not a region that many people will be familiar with. And one of the, the, the challenges in the book really is to acquaint people with the region, to make them feel like they know this region, that they know what it looks like, that they know what it smells like, uh, that they know what, um, you know, what life was like for many people here. So, so I want, I do want to, to say a little bit about that. There is a, there is a, a tension, I think, uh, and it's a tension that we all deal with, with our sources in that I want to provide a way into this world while also recognizing that many, many of my sources are depicting this world in a particular way. And actually, a lot of the analysis comes from that tension of thinking about how is this world framed? How, how are people talking about this region um, within this context of civilization? But it also exists as a real place. And I did want to get to that, that realness um, of the region as well. So um, Volinia itself is a historical region. Um, in the book, I deal mainly with an administrative region, a province called Volinia which was part of the interwar Polish Republic. It's one of 16 provinces in Poland. But when people talk about Volinia, they may also be thinking about this broader historical region whose roots go back into the, um, you know, the medieval period and, and, and before. So um, there's, there's a sort of tension there in a sense of what Volinia actually is. And I want to make it clear that I'm mainly talking about it as an administrative region. Um, it's about 30,000 square kilometers, the beginning of the interwar period. Um, it's home to one and a half million people. It's one of the larger of these provinces in interwar Poland. Um, it has, and this is absolutely critical for the book, um, it has a Polish minority. And I'm using Polish, you know, Polish is problematic here, of course, and I feel like I have to 
have that disclaimer where you know all of these these categories themselves are, are contested and it, it's you know difficult to think well what you know who qualifies as a pole and a ukrainian and, and a jew in this region and so on but even the polish statistics um you know have poles as a minority here less than 17 one seven percent of the population the vast majority around 70 percent are classed as ukrainians um, and there's also about 10 percent jews here along with uh, smaller percentages of germans czechs um, and, and other uh, groups as well um, it's also classified as, as a backward region in interwar poland and again i'm using you can't see what i'm doing but i'm using scare quotes around backward there because again there's a reality here this is a poor region. It's a region with high rates of illiteracy. Um, it's a region where most of the towns don't have, you know, sewage systems and reliable water supply systems. Um, so it, it is a region that has a certain set of problems for a modern state. Um, but of course, the term backward is, is a very, um, you know, it's, a, it's almost sort of an emotional um, term, right? And it's one that I try and avoid using myself in the book, but rather think about the the real problems, structural problems that a region like this has. The last thing I would say is that it is also a place of great variety in terms of the landscape. Um, the, the northern part of Volinia is marshlands. It's part of the Pripyat marshlands that now straddle Ukraine and Belarus. Um, and the southern part is much hillier. It's much more fertile. Um, the population is is, is denser in the southern part than in the northern part. And this also informs the way that I think about the region because as Poles look at this region, as they try and classify this region, this geographical disparity is really important in the way that they're trying to frame their project here. Um, and then the question about scale. This is, this is very critical yeah. for yes. the book. And, you know, I use this term a lot, local. You know, I say this is a kind of local history. Um, in which I am situating the local within this global panorama of questions. Um, the, the, the term local itself is can be problematic, I think. Um, and I, I wonder if historians in general, including myself, need to think a little bit more about what we mean when we talk about local. The scale is overall is, is a provincial scale. It's taking this, this unit, this province of Valinia, as it's the, the unit of analysis, while also trying to problematized, you know, how that unit came into being and, and how it is made and, and also destroyed uh, by the end of the period by the actors that I'm looking at. Um, mm -hmm. But there are also various scales within that provincial unit. So I look at the border um, between Poland and the Soviet Union. I look at towns um, and I look at the idea of rural space, so the village. So in the book, there's this sort of local and global, which is the simplest way to think about it. But then there's also provincial and then within that province, there are various types of space and various scales that I that I attempt to look at. Yeah. And I, I think really interestingly, you bring up explorers like Louise Boyd, the American explorer who, who went into rural Poland um, mm -hmm. and, and collected a lot of information in 1934, um, whose collections I think are in Wisconsin, right? Um, there? Oh, yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, other travel writers who've been covered more like Rebecca West, uh, rather notoriously, maybe. But, um, you know, I wonder if you could give our readers or, or listeners, too, an idea of how you began then to lay out the book. So um, I think you have seven chapters. Uh, right. And how, how did you decide to arrange that? Well, it was a very, I mean, I think structuring a book, I found at least, and I don't know if this is everybody's experience, but I found that really tricky. Um, trying to figure out how to arrange the material 
so that it wasn't just a straight, you know, I didn't want to provide a straight chronology, but I also wanted to, I did want to marry up chronology and theme. And so I went back and forth. I mean, there were chapters two and three were, were one chapter at one point. And I think chapters six and seven were also one chapter. You know, I don't know if this, I don't know if this is apparent to anybody who reads the book, um, but there was some, there was lots of sort of moving things around and then moving things back again. Um, it's a it's a very important intellectual process, I think, to go through that, however frustrating it is, because it forces you to think about what material makes sense um, and in what place. And also thinking about, um, you know what material not to include, and and so it's it's intellectually rewarding ultimately, but it's also it can be very frustrating. Um, so so yes, the way that I, I I ended up doing it is trying to marry up theme and chronology. So dipping into certain places when the stories in those places were most interesting and exciting. So just one example of this would be chapter four is about towns, and you know obviously towns exist in this place throughout the entire period that I'm looking at in the book, so from 1918 uh, to 1939. But the, the question of towns for me was not just about the fact that there were towns and things happened in towns, but to think about when towns as a unit, the concept of the town became particularly interesting and important and dynamic and contested. And so I decided to work um, on towns mainly from thinking about the the late 1920s into the early 1930s, because that was a period at which there were these debates about town expansion and where the borders of the towns lay and who got to decide what was, you know, where did a town end and where did the rural, you know, rural locations begin? And so, you know, again, I could have thought about towns throughout the whole period. And of course they do come up in different places throughout the book, but analytically that, that, category was most interesting for me for that particular period so so that that's chapter four that's in the middle of the book um and then you know toward the end of the book the last two chapters really deal with this question that i referred to earlier about what is volinia who gets to construct volinia who gets to say what that is who gets to say whether it even makes sense as a unit and so the latter two chapters rather than focusing on particular sites within volinia so the border the town the, the village those two chapters, in a sense, zoom out a little bit and are, are a kind of pair. And as I said, they were once one chapter. Um, the first one thinking about regionalism as a project. So the idea that the administrative unit makes sense in cultural and historical um, and political terms, as well as administrative terms. And then the final chapter thinking about how that unit is ultimately um, destroyed in the sense that it is that that people begin to doubt that it even makes sense to think about Valinia as a unit, and that that you know there are other ways in which you can divide up that space. So so there's a kind of a it, again it comes back to this question question of scale. Some of the chapters are much more focused on Valinia as a unit. Others are much more focused on particular sites within that provincial unit, and sort of take that deep dive into an analysis of of those particular spaces. Yeah. And I, I wonder if you could talk about the role of Warsaw in all of this. So um, you begin the book with something that you call the integration myth. And I, I mean, obviously, what, what maps do is they mask a very messy and chaotic reality, right? And I think you, you indicate this really well when the province of, of Linia is born um, by law, right, in 1921. So um, what's the role of the Polish state? 
in the Second Republic then? And, and how then do you begin to construct your narrative through these chapters in the 1920s and 1930s? Yeah, so one of the things that I try to do is really disaggregate the state. And I think there's a tendency sometimes to think about the state as a unitary actor to say, you know, Pol- and I fall into this as well, you know, especially when I'm teaching that Poland did this or, you know, this was Poland's role here. Um, and the more that I looked at the sources, the more that I realized there is no Poland here um, acting in some way toward the borderlands. And the idea of that second chapter, which I titled The Integration Myth, is to really move away from the starting point that this is a story about Warsaw integrating a borderland. That is a very powerful myth, and I, I take it as a myth. I, I try and think about what work it did for people during the interwar period. But for me, as a historian, it doesn't do much work. In fact, what it does is obscure a much more interesting story about the multiple ways in which people and institutions are using this space, this borderland space, and indeed conceptualizing it as a borderland um, to do to do their own work, to write themselves into um, the Polish state and its institutions. Um, and so I begin basically by saying what happens in Warsaw is important in the sense that Warsaw is the political center of the interwar Polish state. So it's not that Warsaw is not important. Things that happen there, you know, there's a coup, of course, in Poland in 1926. This really matters in terms of the policy toward Volinia. Um, you know, that the, the ministries are there, the parliament is there, all of this stuff is important. And, and the kind of signals that come out from that place, the people who are sent into the borderlands by whoever is administering Poland, centrally, all of that really, really matters. So it's not to say that Warsaw doesn't matter as the political center of the interwar state. But I do think that there are many other things going on here. And one of the things that I that I argue is that it's often unclear exactly who represents the state in a place like this. Um, as I said, it's it's sparsely populated. It doesn't have, you know, this is a brand new state setting up in this place. So it doesn't have institutional networks. Um, it's also a hard place to rule. It's the, the, the population, as I said, is pretty uh, sparse there. Um, the transportation networks don't necessarily fit with the the aim of the of these Polish state officials here. Um, so it, it, this is a real challenge, and I really wanted to focus on how difficult this was for these these people. Um, the, the group that I focus on, I call them second tier actors, and they are in many ways, um, you know, occupationally in terms of their education, they're actually quite diverse. So they range from you know, urban planners, border guards, boy and girl scouts, health officials, state officials. I mean, they're school teachers. So there's lots of different people who I classify under this this umbrella. Um, but what unites them is this that, that the fact that they feel that they are representing the state. Some of them are literally representing the state, like the border guards. Others, like a group of military settlers that are important to the, the story, um, aren't official representatives of the state but they sort of see themselves as proxies for state power um, and they are subsidized by the state and so on. So that's, in other words, it's not so much Warsaw sort of sending all of these people out there, but these different groups who see themselves as representatives of the state and are kind of trying to write themselves into that narrative. Um, The other thing I would say just quickly about Warsaw is that I also look at several other cities in that chapter. And the one that I think is, is most interesting is actually the city of Poznan which had been part of the German Empire prior to the war. And Poznan is actually, you know, a rival of Warsaw. 
And I argue there that, 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 that these Poznanians are actually using Volinia, a place on, right on the other side of the Polish state. I mean, Poznan is, is in the west of Poland and Volinia is in the east. And so what I, what I argue is that, you know, the Poznanians are trying to assert their power vis-a-vis Warsaw, that there's a kind of uh, power struggle going on there and that Volinia becomes a place in which the, the, these representatives of Poznan can actually challenge Warsaw and say, actually, we're more civilized than the people in Warsaw and we have a particular role to play in the eastern borderlands. Yeah, and that's such it's such an important idea in a lot of the research that came out in the 20-teens on Phantom Grenzen and these um, imperial phantom borders, right? As, you know, as empires collapsed and then uh, after World War I, you have the, the Rzeczpospolita, right? Um, could, you, could you tell us about your sources and research in Rivne? So um, I, I have to ask you about this because there's so much research that you did um, interestingly, in, in what's Ukraine, right? And uh, so it, what what kind of sources did, did you end up going through and finding in order to explain this experience, really lived worlds of, of second tier actors and their confrontations with technocracy and modernity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I went, I mean, there were sources that I looked at in Warsaw. So the, um, the main archives and modern archives in Warsaw provided some really important sources for the project. And so I started there. Um, and I also, Warsaw also has, you know, great collections on interwar periodicals and so on. And one of the great things about the people that, I, that I'm studying is that they wrote a lot um, because they, they had a, an agenda and they wanted to get that agenda out there. So they, they published in, um, in local newspapers. So many of the Valinian newspapers are actually housed in Warsaw, the university, the Warsaw University Library or the and Biblioteca Narodowa, the National Library in, in Warsaw. So that's where I started. And I really did a lot of my initial research there. And then I, I went back and I wrote for a year. And I realized that this was not enough in the sense that it wasn't getting me close enough to the questions that I wanted to think about in terms of this more local experience. And so I went to Rivna, which is in Western Ukraine. And amazingly, they had all of these archival documents in Polish that the Polish archives never got. And to me, that's kind of mm. incredible that they've never, that the, they, yeah. there were no copies of these archives in Warsaw at all. So I had to go to yeah. Rivne to find them. And just, just so much stuff, you know, I obviously only scratched the surface in terms of what I could access when I went there because I could have spent a, another year there um, in, <laughs> right. in Rivne and you know, explored all of these documents. By that point, I had a, a clearer sense of what the, the dissertation at this point was going to look like. So I had a more targeted approach in terms of what I was actually looking for. Uh, but they have, I mean, they have personal collections from some of the people that I that I focus on in the book. Um, they have minutes of local meetings. They have reports, like people who are going out into the marshlands and reporting on what they're finding there. I mean, just the, the, the collections there are so rich and they, they really give you that sense of, you know, not the not what's not what's being published, not the narrative that these people are necessarily trying to get out there. But these are archival documents. They're not published documents. And they give a much greater sense of the, the tensions within this project and the, the, the real problems that they're finding. They get also get us closer to the, the people on the ground. And as I mentioned earlier, the book in a sense, highlights that tension between 
showing people what this region was and also thinking about how it's constantly being mediated through the sources that I'm looking at. Um, and the question I'm really interested in is how is this region being depicted to fit with a multitude of different political agendas? Um, but those sources did allow me to get a clearer sense of what the region was like and, mm -hmm. you know, what, what people were really obsessed with in the region. So they're obsessed with yeah. mud, you know, they're obsessed yeah, with... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you have a lot of mud. And a lot of that actually comes from, from some of those local reports um, where they're, they're thinking about, what, like, what do we do? How do we convince people that it's a really good idea to get rid of this, this mud? Um, so, so those local, local documents really helped there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Could you give us an idea of who comes in to settle in the region as well? So uh, there's this great tension that I think um, you get at the military settlers who are there, the teachers, the educators, the border guards. Are, are there particular stories that then came out through the periodical literature or in the archival sources that you looked at? Yeah. So the military settlers are very important to the book. As I said, they are not official state representatives, although some of them do have positions um, of, you know, of power in the region in terms of local government. Um, but they, they're, they're really important because they highlight this story, for me at least, about what foreignness means in this place. Again, if we take the, you know, if we take sort of traditional ideas about what foreignness might mean here, you know, we might think, well, on one level, these military settlers are coming from outside. So for local people, the military settlers are the foreigners because they they don't come from mm -hmm. the region. They're coming from right. outside. And there's an interesting, um, you know, there's an interesting argument here about how local Polish speaking landowners don't want these settlers there. As, and also local Ukrainian speaking um, Orthodox populations don't want these settlers there. So there's, there's, there are multiple people in the region who don't want these people coming in and taking this land. The military settlers are allotted uh, land here by the Polish government as basically as a kind of reward um, or you know, this benefit of, of fighting for the Polish state here um, in the initial period after the First World War. And, and so, so there's the sense that you know, the, the, the local people are the genuine people from the region and then you have these foreigners coming from the outside. Yeah. But you yeah. also have arguments that because this region had been under Russian rule, it is foreign to Poland. And right. so then right. the settlers can work themselves into a narrative where they're just bringing back Polishness to the region and getting mm -hmm. rid of foreigners, which is exemplified for them by the people who live in the region. So again, what I'm trying to do is, is get go beyond that sense that we know what foreignness means here and thinking there's actually two competing ideas here. And both are being used by the respective parties to make a case for their own nativeness, for their own the sense that they belong here, that they should be here, that they have a right to be here. And so the, the sort of outsider insider perspective mm -hmm. that in some ways seems so clear at the beginning um, is much more complicated because of this these legacies of foreign partition in the sense that the region needs to be repolonized because it had been part of an earlier Polish state. 
And therefore, the people coming into the region are, are simply bringing that back. They are returning Poland and they are returning the region to its proper historical trajectory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and geographers like to talk about this in terms of nimbyism, right? Not in my backyardism. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the tensions that, that you describe in Poland are so interesting at the town level um, because I, I think we're also dealing with levels of, of literacy and education and, and mm-hmm. socio and socioeconomic struggle. Um, I hesitate to use the word poverty, but, but it, it is impoverished in many ways. Right. Um, what were some of the towns that, that struck you where, uh, these settlers or, or second tier actors, as you describe them moved in? I mean, they're not gentrifiers, right? I mean, these are, these are people living in the 1920s and 1930s or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, how do you understand their civilizing missions and, and how did, let's say, Polish authorities understand um, those in, in particular towns, if you could mention mm-hmm. the towns? Yes, absolutely. So the military settlers are mainly moving to rural locations. Again, I, I try in the book to think about these concepts of rural and urban as in terms of what they meant at the time. So, you know, there are, there are places that are villages and there are places that are towns, but a lot of what animates the book is thinking about, well, who gets to define what a town is and who gets to define what a village is? And as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, when does rural space begin and urban space ends and what kind of debates are going on at the time about that? Um, so that's, that's, that's a really important part of, of what I'm looking at. But the military settlers mainly are are in these small, these villages, basically. And they're they're classified differently because they're classified as settlements, but they're located in the countryside. The towns, I think, um, again, when we think about towns here, we're certainly not talking about cities. I mean, the largest towns are several tens of thousands of people. So they're pretty small, but they do have a different set of qualities associated with them from the village spaces that that I look at in chapter five. And one of the things that really you know, marks the towns out as different, is that the majority populations in these towns are Jews. Now, in that chapter that I look at the towns, this is really important, um, because the towns here are seen on one level to be civilizing centers that can radiate out into the countryside, right? So you have a town, towns generally have higher literacy rates, they generally have more buildings that are made of brick than are made of wood, Um, they generally, you know, have they're more likely, there's more likely to be a, a, a sewage system in a town than in a village. So on one level, they, they appear to be, have the potential to create that kind of um, civilizing mission that's sort of radiating out from, from those urban spaces. But on another, these Polish officials are, are very, um, you know, they feel very negatively about these towns because of the Jewish populations that live there. And they associate Jews with um, much worse than poverty. I mean, they associate Jews with backwardness they argue mm-hmm. that Jews don't know how to run towns, that only Polish Catholics can do that. Um, they argue that Jews have for too long had the majority on the town councils and that one of the reasons why these towns are stuck in, in backwardness is because Jews need to make way for Polish Catholics. And part of this attempt to try and expand the town's borders is to bring in uh, more non-Jewish populations who hopefully will will mean that the, the town council compositions will will change. Um, and so that's that's a really critical dynamic here in thinking about the populations. The rural population is mainly Ukrainian-speaking Orthodox, but in the towns, um, the the idea about civilizing the towns and bringing Polish Catholics into the towns is always bound up with ideas about reducing their Jewishness. Now, one of the things that I argue is that 
there's been a tendency to think about anti-Semitism on the Polish right. And that is absolutely right and understandable that the, yeah. the most rabid anti-Semitism comes from the Polish right. But I think there's been perhaps um, in an attempt to try and find some kind of positive, inclusive version of Polish nationalism in the interwar period, there has been a tendency to romanticize the other side and to say, well, mm -hmm. the people who were not on the right had this much more inclusive idea about Polish nationalism. It certainly was more inclusive. But one of the things that I try and do is to think about the limits of that inclusion and the story about how these more, I don't know what you want to call them, more inclusive, you know, liberal doesn't work because it, it doesn't have the right connotation here. But certainly people who have a an idea about um, a Polish nation that can include more than just ethnic Poles who speak Polish and are, are you know, Catholic, that when you look at the the their ideas about the towns, they're still trying to get rid of Jewishness in these towns, what they see as Jewishness in these towns. Um, and so, you know, for instance, when they create a colony, um, and I look at this in chapter four, uh, the Polish state creates these so-called colonies for Polish state officials in these towns. Um, they create one in the provincial capital, which is called Wutsk in Polish. It's Lutsk today in Ukraine. And one of the problems that they find is that, you know, they're trying to create a sort of mini version of Poland in the middle of this town. Um, and they struggle with that. Right. They struggle because they don't yeah. have the finances yeah, yeah. to do it. They struggle because, um, you know, it, it doesn't really it doesn't really do what they want it to do. It doesn't really transform the entire town into something more Polish, again, in quotation marks. And they, they, they struggle with the fact that perhaps they just created this little enclave of, of Polishness in a town that continues to be Jewish. And that's absolutely what they don't want. They want to transform the entire place into something, again, in this narrower idea about Polishness, into something more Polish. Mm -hmm. Do you do you think, Catherine, that there were models for Volinia elsewhere? I, I mean, Polesia or Galicia. I, I mean, I think about the work that was done on, on Henrik Józewski, and I mm -hmm. wonder if you could talk about the, the persistence of that dichotomy, as you say, quite rightly, um, the Piłsudski-Dumowski dichotomy, and, and, you know, the understanding of tolerance, but really tolerancia on Polish civilizing mission terms, right? Um, so, I mean, is there a model, would you say, for for the modernization of, of Volinia? Do you find that elsewhere among the 16 provinces? Mm, that, that's a really good question. The way that it's been depicted, certainly, I mean, readers, uh, listeners to the show, readers of my book may also be familiar with Timothy Snyder's work on Yuzevsky. Um, Henrik Yuzevsky was the provincial governor here from 1920. Um, 1928 until 1938. So he's a really important figure here. And um, Timothy Snyder's book, Sketches from a Secret War, looks at Yosefsky's role here. And one of the arguments really that he's he's making, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't sort of totally whitewash Yosefsky, but he certainly mm -hmm. holds him up as a figure that yeah. um, tries to yeah. create this, this, you know, this, it's called the Volinian experiment. So the right. idea is that Volinia actually becomes a testing ground for much more inclusive visions of the Polish nation. And it is true compared to other places that Volinia does become uh, a place in which to tolerance um, is, is, is important and is sort of held up as, as a really um, as a guiding principle. But I think the, the, the problem comes when that leads to as exactly what you've said, that there is a lack of maybe interrogation of 
well, what does inclusivity mean and who gets to police the borders of, of what is included in the Polish nation? And, you know, rather than thinking about exclusion and inclusion as shorthands for these two visions of the Polish nation, so the sort of Domowski's exclusionary vision and then Pilsudski and Yuzevsky, who is, you know, part of Pilsudski's um, circle, if you like, that sure. their vision is inclusive. So rather than using that shorthand, actually to think about these concepts like inclusion and tolerance and think about what they mean. I think tolerance in particular is a problematic idea. Um, and, and it's not just people in the Polish context who have looked at this, but there's, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of scholarship of thinking about tolerance. Well, what does tolerance actually mean? It means tolerating something that you don't particularly like. Um, and what yeah, I look exactly. at, exactly. you know, it's like if you have to tolerate something, then the idea is it's not necessarily something that you you right. embrace wholeheartedly. You, you don't like it in, in, and you don't want it in some ways. Exactly, yeah, exactly. That's a great and so, yeah. yeah, so when, when I talk about... Um, you know, the ways in which these more inclusive Polish nationalists think about Jews, for instance, it really is, as you said, on their terms only. So they will, they will at the same time say, well, these towns, you know, they, they're sort of dirty and, you know, Jews that Jews have taken over and the aesthetic is Jewish. And that's a lot, there's a lot of things that they, they, they say about these towns in this negative way. And they associate it with, with Jews. At the same time, they'll say, well, look at this beautiful synagogue. You know, this synagogue has been here for a very long time. There's a sort right. of idea like that, yeah. Yeah. exactly, the, the synagogue in, in Wutsk, which is, you know, I, I, I talk a little bit about how that's written into different architectural traditions in both U the European context and in the Polish context as well, particularly if there, there's evidence of, of Jews who have been in these towns from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. That's seen as a really positive thing. Um, but again, it's it's seen as a positive thing because it actually allows these Poles to tell a story about Polish tolerance. Look at all of these people who we've allowed to live here. Um, look at the fact that this is a kind of model of what we might now call multiculturalism, but wasn't called that at the time. That is actually not about Jews. That's about Poles. That's about ethnic Poles saying, look how tolerant uh, we right. are. And so part of the, the story here really is how do these so-called, you know, more inclusive visions of Poland limit what is included? Um, and again, talk about tolerance in a way that really is about themselves and actually not that much to do with the people mm -hmm. that they're attempting to write into the story. Do, do you find it significant, Catherine, that there isn't a university in Volhynia? You know, I mean, I, I deal with Galicia more or less, and the University of Jan Kazimierz and the, mm -hmm. you know, the promoting and, and let's say demoting um, of, of academics and, and people who were Ukrainians because they could no longer teach there after 1919. So, you know, I mean, how, how do the, the sort of local Volinian provincial activists, even the, the museum builders that you describe, mm -hmm. um, deal with raising the level of education? Because I don't know. I mean, if you're raising the level of education, obviously it's some sort of civilizing mission, isn't it? Or am I wrong there? Yes, I think education is really important here. Um, and you're right that Galicia is an interesting parallel story, I think, here. Um, obviously, you know, for, for listeners, the, the region that I'm looking at had been part of the Russian Empire during the, the, the long 19th century. And Galicia, of course, had been was on the, the Austrian side of the border. So there are different, you come back to that idea yeah, about yeah, yeah. Uh, the partitions and the different traditions in these places. So there are sort of historical re reasons why this, 
this this difference exists in terms of education. Um, you're right. There's no there's no university here. There is a um, like a higher secondary school in Chemnitz, um, mm-hmm. which is the high sort of right. in terms of the the region. Um, has the highest level of education, and this is something the Poles are very proud of. Here, it has a very long tradition. Yeah. Um, La Lavelle, so that, that, La Lavelle was there. My, yes, exactly. My so, geographer, so, yeah. <laughs> so it's not a university, but it it has that. It does have that one place that it associates with um, sure. with higher learning. Um, but you know, I, I talk in in um, chapter six about the fact that when people come to study this region, they do come from the from the outside. They actually mainly come from Krakow this group of academics that I look at toward the end of the book. Um, and they, they, you know, they carry out this research here, but they're outsiders. Um, and they are, they're, they're not from the region itself because there is no, no university there. I think in terms of education, you know, there are, there is this idea that this place is somewhere to be studied. Um, there is a sense that it is somewhere that can reveal certain things about Polish nationalism and about nationalism more generally and how it is, how it is created um, it's almost like a, a petri dish for some people, right? That this is a yeah, place yeah. where you That's do have, yeah. yeah. I mean, there there are people here who, you know, the, the 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 these Polish academics say, well, these people are not yet national. This is the 1930s, and there are people here who still identify with a locality, and they're very interested in these people, not simply because that's interesting in this this period, but also because if the Polish state is to rule this region, and if the vast majority of people here are classed as, you know, as Ukrainian, then then many people say that as a problem. But if you see these people as, you know, a kind of ethnographic mass that is not yet crystallized as a nation, then there's a great potential there for turning these people into Poles. So so that that becomes important in terms of the way that these various academics are classifying these people and thinking about their their political usefulness in a place where Poles still officially are a minority population. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of education, though, I, I generally look at elementary schools in the book because one of the things that I found is that this civilizing mission is based not only on things like literacy, um, but it's also based on things like hygiene, for instance. And, and, and elementary schools become a place in which education is understood, not simply in terms of you know, making sure that all of these kids are literate or making sure all of these kids speak Polish and are inculcated with these values of um, good, you know, being good patriotic Poles in this region where, where Poles are a minority. Um, but it also becomes a place in which the teachers can attempt to break what they see as the cycle of kids, you know, not washing their hands because their parents never did that or not changing their underwear because their parents yeah. don't do that. Right. Or right. not brushing their hair and cleaning their teeth. So the, the the thing about education, which I think is 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 important, is it's not simply about um, what we might traditionally think of as, you know, learning, um, you know, in terms of textbooks and lessons and so on, but also trying to break this cycle, which they feel. I mean, that that these actors that I'm looking at are just incredibly worried that there is no way to break the cycle of people's behavior in this place, and so elementary schools in particular become a place in which they think that they can do that. And that's actually quite different from the way that they're thinking about secondary schools and certainly places of higher education. Mm-hmm. Do, do you find, I mean, this is moving toward your takeaway points and your conclusions, because I wanted 
to bring you through to the end of the 1930s and into the 1940s and into memory. Um, do you find that these classrooms are also sites of fear? I mean, there, I think you capture it really well, this tension in your book um, between the locals and, and those who are, who are coming in to educate them. Um, I, I wonder if this is something that's part of a larger point about Polish history, and, and I'm generalizing here, but there is a, a very strong fear of the lud, right? The people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I see this as something that is um, on both sides of the political spectrum, or maybe on all sides of the political spectrum, all the way through to the end of the 1930s. What, what happens when the masses actually become conscious and educated and what will they do? Um, I don't know if this yeah. is more of, a, more of a comment than a question, but I, I, found, I found that striking as I was reading your book. I think it is really important. And I think what is important in terms of education, but also much more generally, is this idea that this region is becoming more modern. But that, mo that, that process of modernity or those processes of, of modernization have to be controlled by the state. So the reason that the book is, you know, based around this concept of civilization is largely because modernity, I think, is, a, is, is seen as a much more problematic term for many of the people that I'm looking at. Civilization is, is uniquely good. I mean, it means different things to different people. You know, for some, it means this more traditional idea of Polish gentry civilization in the borderlands and the Catholic Church and so on. For my people, it, you know, the people coming into the region, it's much more about a kind of technocratic vision of, you know, modernity that, that means raising literacy rates and building sewer systems and, you know, having, you know, schoolhouses that are clean and tidy and getting rid of the mud and all of this kind of stuff. Um, so there are different ideas about what civilization means. But I think the concept of modernity is more problematic because, they recognize that the region is moving into the modern world, but that's not always a good thing. And it can also bring things that you don't want. So for instance, this, this is right on the border with the Soviet Union. And there's a fear that the local people are, are ignorant, that they are not, you know, they're not, they don't think these people are going to become great Marxist thinkers, but they do think that these people might be tricked into believing that Bolshevism is the answer to their to their problems, so these kind of deep structural problems that we that we talked about earlier. And you know, they also think of you know that, that mod maybe modernity is coming too quickly to this region, but it's coming in the wrong form. And what they really want to do is create a kind of sanitized version of modernity, the right kind of modernity, but one that gets rid of the the ills of modernity that might come into the region, um, you know, whether through through Bolshevism or Ukrainian nationalism, which to talk about Galicia again, they believe is moving northward from Galicia, from areas where Ukrainian nationalism is more developed. Um, this is a bad thing. So they want to try and stem the tide of modernity in its worst possible forms and to bring in the good stuff without the bad. So they, they want to create a kind of apolitical administration here. That means that the region is well run in the sense that it is clean and tidy and people behave themselves and they pay their taxes and they do all the stuff that citizens should do. But they also want, they, they want that to be a buffer against these other modern ideas, mainly ideas about different political ideologies that might come in here and destabilize the Polish state. So yes, I think they see great potential in this region, 
but they are also very fearful of what might happen. And it, it makes sense, I think, to be fearful because there is a this region for them really does represent, you know, kind of existential threat. People there, there is support for communism here. Um, there is, there are Ukrainian nationalism is moving into the region. So, you know, they, they, I, on one level, it's understandable that they want to try and stop those things because, it, from their perspective, those things are challenges to the Polish state. And and what these people, I think, care most about above all else is is Polish state power. Um, and so they want to prevent those things from destabilizing the Polish state. Um, but they, so they, 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 in other words, their their version of modernity doesn't include all aspects of the modern world. Yeah. And I think that's a good segue, Catherine, um, in, into some historiographical commentary, because there are mm-hmm. so many, you know, really wonderful works in Polish history um, published in recent years. And um, there are competing schools of national indifference and comparative history and transnationalism. I you know, I, I think of the, the work of, of Genevieve Zubczycki and Jim Bjork mm-hmm. and Christian Kopp and so forth. Um could you place your work among them and, and tell us a little bit about how, how you're thinking about maybe reconceptualizing the Sanatia uh, period from 1926 to 1935 and, and moving forward in, in Polish history with, with current work on, uh, on, the, on the Polish state, and, and if it's the interwar period that you're interested in or something else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, there are many different ways, I think, in which the work intersects with, with those people that you mentioned and then um, other works as well. Um, I would, I mean, I think maybe it's worth commenting because you mentioned national indifference to, to think about how the book intersects with that scholarship, which has obviously been incredibly influential in the field and is, is really the touchstone for all of us. I think, you know, nobody now will use terms like Pole or Ukrainian um, in ways that don't, you know, problematize that and think about actually in some of these regions, this was not the primary way in which people were identifying. Um, and, you know, the work of Tara Zara and Peter Judson and the Habsburg Empire and, and into the interwar period has obviously um, made us rethink those categories in really important ways. I think that one thing maybe my book adds to that scholarship is to think that it, national indifference, we can certainly use as our category of analysis. And, you know, Tara Zara wrote an um, influential article in Slavic Review with basically with that name. Um, but there are also instances in which what I call, I don't call it national indifference, but I call it national um, um, indeterminacy or, you know, that this idea of, of that there are people that we can study who actually create these categories um, of, you know, of people not being firmly associated with one particular nation and that that does important work for them. So, I, you know, I mentioned that there are these academics who try to conceptualize of the people in this region as not fully national. Um, they either say that these people have not yet joined a nation or that they were once Polish and that they have this sort of Ukrainian out sort of coating yeah. on the outside. Yeah, sort of a, a, a pole underneath. And this is used actually to justify um, some of these um, more aggressive demographic policies in the ni- in the late mid to late 1930s, um, whereby you justify conversions of people, often you know, these are forced conversions of people to Roman Catholicism by saying, well we're not converting you, we're just reconverting you. We're taking you uh-huh. back to you know the the religion of your ancestors because you're really Polish even if you don't realize it. So this, the, I think, you know, the, the national indifference stuff is really important in in my book. But I'm also thinking, well, what about 
people who are not concerned about national indifference, but are actually using that category to press for a particular political agenda. So, so that, that I think is where it fits in uh, with that scholarship. Um, you know, the other thing I would say in terms of the, the literature on interwar Poland, um, in addition to this idea of, you know, there's the there's sort of the bad Polish nationalism, which I absolutely think is bad as well. But that the what I'm, I'm trying to argue, I think, is that the good is not quite as good as we might like it to be if we're looking for the antidote to that bad Polish nationalism. Um, and I think some of that comes down to thinking about periodization as well. So, you know, the traditional periodization of the Polish interwar period is, you know, you have the, you know, you have sort of 1918 to 1926, then you have the coup, then you have the Senatia period until 1935 when Pilsudski dies, and then you have this sort of going back to these um, more exclusionary ideas in the late 1930s. And, and so one thing I think the book contributes is when we move it out, when we move beyond that framework, it's actually a bit messier. And you know, I argue toward the end of the book that 1935 is not such a clear break. It's not that Pilsudski dies and everything falls apart, but actually a lot of the ideas that undermined this Volinian experiment that, that Timothy Snyder writes about, they pre- predate 1935. It, it, Pilsudski's personality is important, but actually a lot of the challenges to the, the idea of Volinian regionalism and so on are actually, they, they start in the early 1930s. They don't start straight in 1935. And so, I mean, I think that's part of my broader historical approach that, you know, that the that the key figures of Polish history are important, but they there is so much else going on in terms of these second tier actors that doesn't fit with, when, you know, the, the chronology of when someone comes to power and when somebody dies. Right. And and my last question for you, since we're running out of time, Catherine, is um, to ask uh, if you could recommend for our listeners here at New Books Network um, some books, maybe two or three authors. I know you have Jared McBride and others. And, and talk a little about your current research, which sounds fascinating to me, on the Global Counselor Network of Poland and, and more on borders and borderlands. So um, if you could give us the recommendations, perhaps, and, and what you're working I'd on. I'd be happy now. to. Yeah, so, so there's a couple of books on Poland that I think um, would be interesting to people who are just kind of coming to this topic and thinking about global Poland and thinking about reconceptualizing Poland. Um, one is Brian Porter Sukes's uh, book, which came out, I think it came out in 2014, which is called Poland in the Modern World Beyond Martyrdom. This is basically a textbook of Polish history. It's not a, a monograph. But I what I like about this book is that it takes Poland out of this martyrdom story and it actually argues that what makes Poland interesting is it's how normal it was um, in terms of its relation to, to global processes rather than some kind of separate path that it took and I think it's it, it's important both for people thinking about why study Poland um, but it's also important I think because it 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 does important work in providing a model of how to push back against national narratives and really to think about Poland, not as an actor or, you know, any nation as an actor, but to think about, um, you know, the ways in which myths are constructed, why those myths are constructed. It's, it, it takes the myths, but it also engages with the myths and then presents us with a different way of thinking about how Poland might be useful. And what he suggests, actually, is that Poland as a country, you know, as a European country, but one that is considered to be um less developed, and again, quotation marks around that term, than other um, countries in Europe, that actually that is what makes it interesting because it, it 
it is a place where you can study the, the construction of those hierarchies and think about how a country like Poland or actually any of the countries in what has traditionally been thought of as Eastern Europe are, are trying to navigate those tensions in the modern world. And there's, there's great work coming out now about you know global thinking about global Poland and Poland as part of the second world and, you know, Malkozhata Mazurek's work and Theodora Dragostinova's work. I mean, this is really an important way of thinking about what does Eastern European history contribute to European history and global histories more generally. So I, w- I would say that. Um, I also know that you interviewed uh, Lenny uh, Orenia Valerio, and I would recommend her book, um, Colonial Fantasies, Imperial Realities. Um, this goes until 1920. So chronologically, there's not much overlap with my work, but there's a lot of overlap in terms of thinking about the construction of civilizational hierarchies. And um, it's really pathbreaking in the way that she thinks about um, Poland's role vis-a-vis, um, you know, ideas of colonialism and imperialism and, and these different hierarchies in which Poles, you know, position themselves. So I, I would really recommend that. And seeing as you've just done an interview with her, and um, people can listen to that. And then finally, and this is a book that has nothing to do with Poland, uh, Vanessa Ogle's book, The Global Transformation of Time, um, is for me a real model of thinking about the global and the local and how you can tell a global history without neglecting the local and how you can really think about the ways in which local stories, local actors um, take on those ideas that are that are circulating globally for their own particular purposes. And that, that's very important to my work as well. So I'd recommend that one. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then briefly about the new project. So this this project yeah, about Poland's consular <laughs> network. Yeah. Well, I think Ogle's book is, is important here because it's, it's, it's a model how to do this. I'm interested in how these various consular sites, um, you know, in China, in um, mandatory Palestine, in Brazil, you know, in France, in, in multiple locations across the world, um, navigated ideas about Polish citizenship, looked at Polish citizenship applications, um, rejected some of them, um, you know, revoked citizenship from certain people. I'm looking at this from 1918 until the early until the early years of the Cold War, um, and I'm really interested in thinking about how these local consular um, officials um, played these these roles in these these different places and what it means to to talk about citizenship in locations far beyond the borders of Poland itself. Fantastic, Catherine. You've covered so much ground here for our New Books Network listeners in in a brief amount of time. And I want to thank you for joining us. Um, This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been really fun. And thanks for all the work that you do on the New Books Network. This is, it's really great to, to have a chance to talk to your listeners. So I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here at New Books in Eastern European Studies, and we've been speaking with Dr. Catherine Ciancia about her new book called On Civilization's Edge, A Polish Borderland in the Interwar World, published by Oxford University Press. Congratulations to her. It is a new book, 2020. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.